Hi, this is your host, Jeremiah Latimo, and this is Gates of Perception. Hi, welcome. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for joining me for today's episode. So in this episode, I want to discuss and unpack what is currently happening in the world in many different parts of the world from Gaza to DR Congo, Pakistan, Libya, India. There's just so many spaces in our collective experience where there is just high degrees of human suffering, genocide, death, violence, and just dehumanization on so many levels. And given this privilege that I have to be observing this, to be watching it from my screen, the comfort of my home, I have been in deep introspection because, as some of you may know, I was born during a genocide and a lot of civil wars that were also happening in Congo, where I was born, and genocide that's taking place now in DR Congo was also still taking place when I was a child as well. So it's definitely hit a really, really tender space inside that could have only been activated by these atrocities. And it's a grief that I don't usually have access to. I think these experiences are catalysts to that grief. It's brought up a lot of reflections, it's brought up a lot of pain, it's brought up just to me witnessing a life that could have been my own. Seeing my mother in the mothers that I'm watching in these videos, seeing my inner child in the children that I'm seeing in these videos that are traumatized and afraid and in, in fear of their life, you know, and fear of losing their life. It's brought up a lot of reflections personally, but also just collectively, because now I go online and I see this polarization. And with that polarization, I also notice with the clients that I'm working with, with the people that have messaged me and reached out and just the shares that I'm seeing from the people I've been communicating with, there is a lot of people that are just paralyzed. They have no relationship to their own personal experience anymore. They're completely enmeshed with the collective experience and no longer have access to how am I feeling, right? And meaning that there is a boundary that you've created, meaning that you know where you end and where the world begins. And so I noticed that a lot of people, given what's happening, don't have that boundary established with the world, with this information, with the news, with everything that's happening. There's no boundary there. And so there's this very seamless enmeshment that takes place where we're just completely detached from our own personal experience and don't have the discernment to really notice like how much of what I'm feeling is simply what I'm carrying on behalf of the collective. And 
that is shaped by the guilt and the shame we might feel when we really notice and acknowledge how privileged we are. And so I really want to talk about that and how we can move through shame and guilt during these times and grief as well. And a way in which we can start to look at the different things that are happening in the world from a lens that is actually empowering, from a lens that can actually empower us to not only take action in our lives, but to also accelerate our own healing and growth. Because just as we see in the relationship dynamics where somebody might tell you that conflict is an opportunity for deeper intimacy between you and your partner, when we see the world and we feel the conflict, the tension arising inside of our own bodies in reflection to what's happening, it is an opportunity for us to come into deeper relationship with ourselves. And so I'm going to be discussing and sharing that from a psycho-spiritual perspective about how we can also deepen the relationship with our own ancestral nervous system and how we can be more loving towards our ancestors and there's so much i'm going to talk about around that um, and how much of that is actually active in what we're experiencing as our own grief and what we're actually grieving so and so let's just jump into it i'm going to try my best to make sure this isn't two hours long there's a lot to unpack and I'm excited that you're here and thank you so much for tuning in. So given the atrocities we're witnessing in the world, there is a collective response to these atrocities. And that collective response is often a really, really three different responses. There is the fight response, there is the flight response, and there is the freeze response. So as a collective, we have a collective nervous system that we share with the collective that we are a part of. And so when there is war, there is conflict, there is tension, we move into different directions. So a lot of us are in a fight response. So that means we are online, we are screaming at people, we're demonizing people, we're fighting, we're posting, we're sharing, we're very loud with what's happening in our message and our stance. And then there's the flight response, which is the bypassing approach, which is often really, really popular within the spiritual communities, which is you just pretend that it's all the same and it's all one and that there's only love here and that there's only oneness. And so the flight response is a spiritual bypassing where we forget our bodies in the process of attempting to process this experience by just detaching from it all and saying that, well, it's all in God's design and we ignore the aspect of our bodies that can feel the suffering of our brothers and sisters that wants to take action, that wants to be mobilized into some form of effective action, whether that's uh, donations, whether that's uh, protesting, whether that's uh, standing beside our brothers, whatever that is, we are detaching and dissociating from that aspect of our bodies for whatever reason. Maybe that's just 
how we deal with conflict, right? We pretend it doesn't exist, we ignore it, and we hope it goes away. And so the spiritual community has this very, very deep relationship with bypassing what is happening in the world, referring to it as maya, referring to it as an illusion, referring to it as something that we must transcend, right? So maybe you know this, maybe you've seen some accounts embodying this and teaching this and supporting people and kind of spiritually bypassing what's happening. And then you have the freeze response. So a lot of people are in a state of freeze, where in the face of conflict, in the face of collective injustice, oppression, genocide, illegal occupation, all of these atrocities that we're witnessing, we become so overwhelmed that we can't even mobilize into the fight or the flight where we just actually become stuck. So becoming stuck, meaning that I can't actually move. I'm just stuck, scrolling, 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 watching, watching, watching every day, is saturating my mind with this information, with these videos, um, with articles and news headlines about what's happening every morning. I can't stop thinking about it, but I'm not moving. I'm just in the experience of being paralyzed. I feel so bad about the fact that I can't do anything about it. And so therefore I stay stuck, I stay frozen. And so to mobilize myself and to fight is too scary because that might lead me to tell people about what I'm feeling or to talk about the situation or to share my stance on it. And maybe that might be scary because maybe you're a an influencer or a public figure or your family's Jewish or your family doesn't like to talk about politics or you don't have any group of friends that can really have a constructive conversation with you around this. And so there's different responses to this given situation that a lot of people are assuming through a unconscious response to collective trauma. And so what I find effective during these times is to get very intimate with my own nervous system because a lot of people are, like I mentioned earlier, is there is an enmeshment taking place with the collective nervous system and the personal nervous system. So in my understanding, there is three different nervous systems. There is my nervous system, there is my ancestral nervous system, and there is the collective nervous system. Each resides in me. So there is no separation between the three. Each is a different sphere of intimacy. So there is my personal sphere of intimacy that includes my ideas, my beliefs, my values, my experiences, my feelings, and my emotions. And then outside of that sphere of intimacy, and again, it's a sphere of intimacy because it is into me that I am seeing. And so beyond my personal sphere is my ancestral nervous system. And so that includes the feelings, the thoughts, the beliefs, the pain, the trauma, the values, the principles, all of the experiences and memories of my ancestors. Because I am my ancestors just as much as they are me. And so there's actually a separation. There's no separation between me and my ancestors. They are here with me now. The only thing that creates some sort of 
division or separation is just the trauma. And so beyond that is the collective. So my ancestral nervous system actually connects me to the collective nervous system. And so inside of me lives an internal Pangea where all people, all groups, all life exists inside of me. If I'm not adept, right, I'm not skilled enough to navigate these different aspects of myself, these different spheres of intimacy without becoming overwhelmed, without losing myself, without forgetting who I am, what's going to happen is I'm not going to know which one I'm residing in, which one is requiring my attention, which one I need to process and sit with. And so given everything that's happening, we have to expand what we believe is the individual. Because what I'm sharing with you is happening inside of your body. So if you think you're a separate entity that exists separately from all of life, then it's going to be very hard to start to grasp and relate to these other aspects of yourself. And so what I find most helpful is to recognize that I am an individual, but the idea of what an individual is seen from the Western lens is very limiting. An individual is a vibrant ecosystem. So as an ecosystem, I am just as much a part of my environment as my environment is a part of me. And so that requires me to relate to it differently than I would if I believed I was separate from it. And so this is also present in our definition of nature. We have a word for nature. There are indigenous communities and wisdom keepers that do not have a word for nature because nature is not a separate entity from their own being. So there's no, I have to connect with nature. There's no word, there's no sentence for that because it's not a separate entity. It's not a separate sustainer or source that you go out of yourself to connect with. Right. And so this is the same when we can translate to our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with others. So now, given my own personal experience with this, it's really lately I've been having a lot of dreams where I'm vividly in times of war, where I'm a soldier, I'm fighting on the battlefield. I'm with a crew of people and we are attempting to accomplish some kind of mission. So this for me tells me when I have dreams like this, that my ancestral nervous system is very much online, meaning that my ancestors are communicating to me about their experience that's being catalyzed by what I'm witnessing in the world. And so that for me, helps me relate to the pain that I'm processing. Because many of us are seeing the things that are happening in the world. And the thing that's really being activated is the pain of our ancestors when they were colonized, when they were massacred, when they were evicted from their land. And sometimes if you have Western ancestry, meaning that maybe your family were colonizers, 
you are in touch with the part of your own ancestral regret and grief where you and your ancestors were the ones that were colonizing a specific land, a specific group of people, taking them from their land, occupying their land illegally, mining their resources, exploiting these people. And you're experiencing the grief, the rage, the regret, the desire for atonement being manifested as your pursuit to stand by these people. Whether you are feeling very called to share online about what is happening in Gaza and standing beside the Palestinian people, or you're feeling, oh my God, the Jews are right to claim this land. Whatever stance you've taken, a lot of the activation happens first personally, and then the next sphere of that is going to be your ancestral connection. So meaning, what is your relationship with your ancestors? How much of their memories is being activated by what you're witnessing in the world? So right now in the world, we are invited to create healing spaces collectively for each other to start to process this, to start to confront and face some of the collective trauma that we've actually frozen over time. So wars and atrocities and genocides are actually a predictable response when you look at our collective relationship on a micro level, like a relationship between two lovers. If you notice that these two people are always having the same fight over and over and over again, you know for yourself, if you're observing this, these two people are, it's not about the topic at hand. It's not about what they're discussing. It's not about the details or the politics of the past. It is about the trauma that neither one of them are taking the time to acknowledge that's being activated. And so the disagreement is a response often to something that has been left unaddressed in the past. So maybe the person is actually being triggered by an old pain that was brought by the mother or the father. And the same for the other partner. Maybe they're being triggered by this person's response that's reminding them of a response that their mother or their father had. And so now they're both in their bag of coping mechanisms. So one is fighting, one is fleeing the situation, one is just frozen and trying to stonewall or ignore that the conflict is happening. So from this micro understanding, when we expand that out and look at it from a collective perspective, wars, disagreements, conflicts, global atrocities like what we're seeing, if we use the micro and the macro, are a clear symptom of issues and traumas and conflicts that have gone unaddressed, unexamined, and completely ignored and bypassed. So now, if we ground into what is happening, let's say in Gaza for uh, an example, when you ground this information, what you are witnessing is Jews illegally occupying a land that was predominantly occupied by Arabs. And so the Israeli government is now killing and massacring thousands and thousands of people and has been for more than 75 years. More people will tell you like, oh no, it's been 75 years. Like the Nakba like started way before 1948. So 
and it's still going on. This, when you look at it from the relational standpoint, not the geopolitical, the relational, right? You have Arabs and you have Jews. Arabs and Jews are Semitic people. The Semitic people speak Semitic languages. Those languages include Arabic, Hebrew, Canaanite, uh, Amharic, which is the language of the Ethiopian people, Tigre, which is the language of the Eritrean people. So there's a couple of other languages. So these languages belong to the Semitic people. So it's very, very odd when people that criticize the Jews when they're speaking on behalf of the Arabs are called anti-Semitic. What would be more appropriate is to call them anti-Jew. The statement anti-Semitic actually doesn't make any sense. They are both Semitic people. So now, when you ground into that information, given the complexity of the history, what you are seeing is a clash between two members of one family. So now when you understand it from the micro perspective of, you know, two people in one relationship, what we're seeing is that, yes, people can have common origin, but that doesn't guarantee common interest, common beliefs, because even myself, I have family members that I do not get along with, that I do not like at all. And so the same is with the Japanese and the Koreans. They both have Asiatic origin, but they don't get along. The Hutus and the Tutsi, these are ethnic categories that have been invented by colonialism, but it's between two groups that are of the same origin in Rwanda. And the same can be said about the Irish and the British. Again, there's many, many origins that actually tie these groups of people together, but they do not get along. The Irish do not like the British. And so where does this conflict and this rift then begin? So the conflict actually is fueled by the pursuit of political and economic power. When I'm trying to gain control over territories and control over resources, this is when we see divides. This is where the differing aspirations and ambitions actually shape the conflict and the disagreements. And it's the same in my own personal family. The reason I don't get along with certain siblings is because we have different aspirations. We have different ambitions. I see the world in a different way. I want to address things that may they, maybe they don't want to address, right? And so so the vivid manifestation of conflict, of war, is often shaped by collective history, pains, and these diverging aspirations for control, for land, for occupation, for resources. This is what shapes these paths that actually diverge despite a common origin. So the reason I shared all of that is so that we can now have a more holistic view when we're now talking about taking a stance and being against genocide, condemning illegal occupation, condemning corrupt governments. Now we can have a more holistic point of view 
Because what often happens when we are witnessing these things happening in the world, and sometimes these things can be more local to us, like it can be a court case, it could be I am pro-abortion, I am not pro-abortion, I am Muslim, I am Christian, I don't believe in what you believe, I think that this is the best diet, and this is also present within the vegan community. There is polarization that's often created when we have a stance, when we believe something to be the truth, right? The capital T, truth. There is this divide that the reason why I'm, I shared all of that context before is because the divide, the polarization is what is perpetuating the problem. Our response to a crisis is the part of the crisis that we're actually trying to mend. But we're unknowingly giving more life to the crisis by dividing. And so in a state of conflict, people start to choose their packs. They start to, you're over there and I'm over here. We start to other, right? And so what I then start to do is impose my worldviews onto other people, my revelations, my personal revelations onto the world. And people that don't see the, the world in the same way that I do or reinforce my own beliefs as well as the beliefs of those that I see as my tribe, then they're wrong, then they're demonized, then they're bad, then they're on the wrong side of history. This is all a recipe for collective dehumanization. Because the moment I start to see the other as the other through the lens of an image, a object, or just as the face of evil itself, what I then begin to do is I first erase the aspect of my humanity. Because there's no way I can dehumanize somebody without first erasing that aspect of my own humanity that I can feel them as intimately as I feel my own experience, as intimately as I know myself. I have to erase the essence that connects me to them. I erase that part of myself, part of me that can feel them in me. I have to erase that. And then I get to dehumanize them. I get to label them. I get to demean them. I get to demonize them. And so this is really what creates the very conditions of hate that we're attempting to uproot. This dehumanization, we're trying to address, we're trying to uh, tackle dehumanization, discrimination, and injustice while employing the very tactics that perpetuate it. How can we do that? How can we say we're against dehumanization and discrimination and we're fighting for collective healing, a world where everybody is equal? Then we're deploying online, in our personal circles, in our intimate gatherings, in our discussions with other people, the same things that are the seeds of discrimination, dehumanization, and hate. This is, we're creating the conditions through our response to the crisis, through our response to the conflict. 
So many of you right now are online, possibly screaming at people, dehumanizing ethnic groups, labeling people as bad and wrong, and they're the problem. Completely giving more life to the very thing that you're trying to uproot, to the very thing that you're trying to dismantle. You are giving life to the power structure that you claim to be against. And so the reason why this happens is because of what I shared earlier. In our personal sphere of intimacy, in the relationship we have with ourselves, we can't hold the multiplicity and the complexity of the human experience, of the human condition, the things, the experiences that shape the human condition. We can't hold that. We can't process those complexities. Because as I shared earlier, this history and this understanding is a complexity of relationships, a complexity of historical history shaped by trauma, collective pain, and atrocities that have been happening for millennia. And so because we can't process that, because we can't, our body can't hold those nuances, right? What we then tend to do is to other. Our tendency to other, to dehumanize, to start to belittle the pain of other people is a sign of our own personal disconnection. My inability to connect to myself, to be able to grapple with life's paradoxes. So right now, as a collective, we're revealing our capacities. Our capacities are more present than ever. There is one side over here, and then there's another side over here. And anybody that actually embodies a nuanced perspective, a nuanced take, is often demonized, is often looked down upon, is often seen as everything else but they're actually portraying and articulating. So people want you to be on one side or the other. And so this is where the conversation happens for us collectively, where we start to retrain ourselves and how we respond to conflict. So it is very, very important that we take a stand, right? Like there are certain things that you must be very specific about, that you're not okay with, that you do not uh, condone, right? That you specifically condemn and are not okay with because they are, they are the clear reflection of your own values. And so to stand by our values is to remain in integrity. And so if you're a person that is against genocide, stand on that, right? Stand on that. Take a firm stance. So the nuance here is that you can actually take a stance on something, right? I can be completely against illegal occupation, the massacre of thousands and thousands of children, the bombing of hospitals in Gaza, and right? And this is not the either or approach. And not dehumanize ethnic groups. So you see, I can remain firm in my values without creating polarization or without perpetuating polarization. This is the nuance. And the reason is because 
I can condemn actions, right? You see the difference? I'm condemning actions. I'm condemning the Israeli government. That is an institution that is a corporate entity existing to perpetuate itself and sustain its own existence. I can be against genocide. I can be against violence. I can be against war. I can be against the death and massacre of innocent lives and children without dehumanizing, disconnecting, and demonizing ethnic groups, without saying, I'm condemning the Jews, I'm condemning the Arabs, I'm condemning people, humans. So I can be against the actions. This is the nuance. I can be against the actions. And I can still keep my heart open. I can still be compassionate towards humans. I can still have empathy for the complexities of experiences, pains, and history that are shaping their actions. Let's bring it down to the micro again so that we can really, really see this. In an experience with a lover, when that person is doing something that hurts you, whether they lied to you, whether they stonewalled you, or hasn't responded to you, or ghosted you, or reacted sharply when you stated your boundaries, you can be against the actions, right? You may not be okay with the lying. No tolerance for that. Great. You may have no tolerance for somebody reacting sharply to you. You may have no tolerance for disrespect. Great. And when you understand the complexities of the human experience, you understand that maybe somebody lying to you, maybe somebody not uh, honoring your boundaries, maybe somebody reacting sharply to you is shaped by a multiplicity of different experiences that they've had over their lifetime. So that might mean that their parents reacted to them in the same way, so therefore they've developed a certain response to that. So again, this is how we hold both. I love you. I don't like what you're doing. I don't like how you responded to me. I don't like this pattern that you've developed and are still embodying in our relationship. And I also still love you. And I can see the part of you that is responding to the past and not being present with me. The part of you that shaped this and created this response to conflict based on pain that you weren't allowed to process, based on the lack of safety that you had in your childhood. You see, in this example between me and a lover, I am against, I'm taking a stance. I've took a stance. I don't like that. Please don't do that anymore. Let's work on that. Let's address that in therapy. Let's make sure you have a circle of friends where you can start to process maybe some of the things that have happened that shape that response. Like, let's work on that because I'm not okay with that. But you see, I didn't close my heart to the person. I didn't start to dehumanize them. I didn't start to give them the narcissist label. I didn't start to see them as the other. I didn't forget that we're both in this relationship and we're trying our best to make it work. I didn't lose sight of that. So in this example, 
this can translate collectively, but we have an inability to do that. And our inability to do that collectively is the same reason we have an inability to do that in our personal relationships. How many of us, the moment somebody does something that we don't like, we're throwing the narcissist label on them. We're throwing the toxic label on them. We're immediately getting ready to jump out of the relationship, right? So many of you right now are not speaking to the government, are not speaking to the institutions that perpetuate injustice. You're not speaking to the policies. You're speaking to people, humans, that are entangled in the same complex web of systemic injustice, disconnection, and dehumanization that you are. And everybody is looking for answers. Everyone that you've connected with is looking for answers, is looking for clarity, is looking for a way forward. They're not against you. You're not against them. We're each trying to figure this shit out at the end of the day. So rarely any of you are sitting in front of the UN Council. Your message isn't going to broadcast to them. It's going to broadcast to the people that's entangled within the same complex web as you are. That can be your family. That can be your brother. That can be your partner who doesn't see it the way that you do. And so that's what I'm saying. Like We don't have to jump to demonizing these people. We don't have to jump to dehumanizing them. They're not monolithic representations of the systems that we're critiquing and that we're against and that we're also oppressed by. They're not. Your partner, the man that you love, that you're in a relationship with, is not the patriarchy. He's not. He's not the system that literally oppresses you as a woman. So how can we come to relationship? How can we come to understanding one another, holding the complexities of our human experience in a way that creates a bridge to understanding, creates a bridge to collective healing? So we don't really have the spaces, the institutions where a lot of this can transpire on a group and a collective level. But this is why I'm sharing the more personal and relational aspect, because you are the collective. The collective lives in you. And so what you choose to do, how you choose to respond is shaping our collective experience. So rather than trying to place your attention on what you can do to change the world, right? Which is why most people are overwhelmed and paralyzed right now constantly trying to grapple with how am I going to affect the world? Look at how you're relating right now to the people closest to you. How present are you in your relationships? How often do you polarize? You start to label and create a bad person over here, other somebody that's very close to you, impose your worldviews on people that may not see the world as you do. Where can you start to be more present, create that bridge, create those healing spaces in your personal relationships? 
Because what is a society but a collective of relationships? So we're drunk off the wine of immediacy and gratification because of these social apps. We think that what we want to see in the world is going to happen in our lifetime. So we're rushing to take action to do things. And again, that is very naive. What you want to see in the world, the change you want to see, the real change, that stuff is gradual and slow. It spans beyond one lifetime. So the things you're doing now, you won't see the fruits of them. We are all seeds placed in the soil of the earth by the hands of our children's children's children. That is what's happening. So we have to let go of this idea that I need to do this because this is going to create change. The change you're envisioning is not going to happen in your lifetime. What revolutionary do you know saw the fruits of their labor in their lifetime? Martin Luther King didn't live to see black people and white people in schools together, free from Jim Crow laws and regimes. He didn't see that. Again, but his children's children got to see it, got to participate in it, and that's now their new normal. So we have to also ground into that experience. We have to ground that information in, when, in, in our actions, in the things that we're doing or the things that we feel compelled to do. Because those are the things that are actually shaping our actions at times. It's this desire for immediate gratification. And so when we really ground into what change is about, change is not only gradual, but it's relational. Meaning that it happens in the relationship with myself and then ripples out into how I relate to others, the people around me, the people in my life. That is where the change is happening. And that is where the lack of change is most present. How do I respond to people that don't see the world the way I do? Do I shame them? Do I try to shame them into action? Guilt trip them into doing things? Or seeing the world in the way that I do? In that example right there, I am the problem. I am the very problem that I'm claiming I'm fighting against. I am the very instigator that I see as the media, right? The media then like portrays and pins people against each other through propaganda, through certain language, through the demonizing and labeling of certain groups, the exaggeration and the omitting of certain information, right? This is how the media works. But you see, in my own life, I am that. If I'm the person that's coming to people, belittling them, shaming them, shutting them down when they share a viewpoint that doesn't reinforce my own, talking down on ethnic groups that I've never, never sat with and actually spoken to, people that I've never actually engaged with, parts of the world that I've actually never even seen myself, 
But I've already come to conclusions about. I've already labeled, I've already boxed these people in. But I have zero, no relationship to them. You see, I am the very thing that I'm fighting against. It's in me. It lives in me. So until we start to understand that no matter what we do, once these systems, let's say we dismantle all of them today, it won't change anything because they live inside of us is what I'm saying. They live in me. I am the very system that I have been fighting. It's here now. It's here in my communication. It's in how I respond to people that don't agree with me. It's how I respond to my loved ones' triggers and their trauma responses. It's all there. And so in these moments is where we actually begin to witness the rise of the feminine. And so most people aren't going to like this, but the rise of the feminine doesn't mean the rise of women. The rise of the feminine is the inclusivity, the unity, the capacity to see people through the eyes of equality, the compassion that we extend to others that cannot do anything for us. It's that capacity to hold collective grief without rushing to shut it down, without rushing to change it, to morph it into something else. That is the rise of the feminine. It is the rise of the feminine principle of life. This is not about women. Women are included in it just as much as men are, just as much as all beings are. But it is the feminine principle of life itself that we have lost touch with, that we have devalued. This is why we're always in these polarizing states of either or, of right or wrong, of left or right. This is a hyperfixation of the masculine principle. The masculine principle divides, it discriminates, it reduces things to numbers and quantifies life. Not in a negative way, this is just how it expresses its unique energy and its fundamental to life. The analytical, the logical, the rational, the discriminatory aspect of the mind is each essential. It's an essential part of life. The hyperfixation is what we see manifested as a patriarchal power structure. And that manifests as a hierarchical system of dominance. It's shaped by this very base principle that is deeply empowered through the realms of rationality, intelligence, discrimination, uh, either or, that world. So the feminine principle is about the both and. The feminine can hold all of that, can see all of it, can embrace it, can love it, can take it in, can accept it, can nurture creation. Because it is the womb of life. There is nothing that can arise within creation that the feminine can hold. Because all of it emanates from the feminine. 
All of it comes from the feminine. So there's nothing it can't hold. There's nothing it can't accept. There's nothing it can't love. So when we understand the feminine principle, we notice now what's lacking. What's lacking in our connections, what's lacking in the collective, is the integration of the feminine principle. And so what manifests collectively and individually is radical inclusivity. Radical inclusivity means that I include the world in my decisions and my actions. Meaning that how much of the world can I take in in the way that I live my life? How much of the world can I include in the way that I live my life? In the way that I approach my relationships? If all I can include is my own trauma, is my own pain, is my own beliefs and ideas, do you see how constricting, how limiting and rigid I'm going to show up? The only thing that I can hold in process is just my own personal stuff, my own personal beliefs. That's all that I can hold and that's all I have space for. So that means I can only hold space and connect with people that reinforce that. But if I expand my capacities, then I can include more of the world. Meaning now I can start to include my family. I can start to include my friends. Then I can expand even further out and I can start to include people that don't agree with me. People that don't see the world that I, the way that I do. And even groups that I also don't like. Groups that I don't personally resonate with. I can include the complexities of history and experiences that might shape our differing opinions. See, this is intelligence. This is wisdom. This is my body expanding its capacities to hold more of the world. And so relationally, the reason why I might not be able to hold more of the world, and I might be really fixated on one point of view and I can't hold opposing truths and paradoxes, is the same that would happen in a relationship. If my partner brings an issue to me, but I don't feel my issue has been resolved, do you think I'm going to be able to hold their opinion, their insights, and even their accountability? Probably not. Because I only have space, right? I don't have enough capacity to now hold their pain while I'm still holding my own. I don't feel that I've been seen. I don't feel that issue that they're talking about actually has been acknowledged and addressed in the way that it happened to me last week. And so I can't hold their pain. I'm going to push against it. I'm going to deflect. I might ignore them. I might stonewall them. I might make them out to be a bad person for bringing it up. You see, because my body can only process my personal experience right now. And because I don't feel that experience has been really acknowledged and validated, I can't let it go. I can't move forward. I can't create space inside of myself to include their experience. You see, this is just relational. Now, this is the collective. I can't hold, right, as a black man, the experience of white men 
if I don't feel inside of my body that I've been validated, that I've been seen, that I've been held in my experience and my trauma as a black man. I can't hold then the experience, the trauma, the complexities of history that include people that don't look like me. You see, this all comes back to our personal relationship with ourselves. So what we can do is if we have a desire to be the remedy for the world, to be a safe space for the world, to be the carriers of the light we want to see in the world, we have to take a deep examination of our relationship to ourselves. A lot of people are rushing out to look at the collective experience and assume that, wait, what I'm experiencing is the collective. What I'm experiencing is the collective grief. What's being activated is what's happening in the world when they're completely out of touch with the personal sphere. So before you try to be the change you want to see in the world, before you try to be the compassion you want to see in the world, the remedy, the haven, the sanctuary for the collective and the world to feel safe and at home with, learn to be that for yourself. Don't jump to the collective. It is self-abandonment. That is dissociation. Why are we jumping to hold the collective when we have not even become a haven for ourselves? So this requires that we have a conscious relationship with social media. If there are things within my personal experience that are very overwhelming, that are happening right now, that I need to be present for, that I need to commit to, or that I need to change and shift, that is what takes precedence. That is what I must prioritize. Not trying to be here for the world. Why am I trying to be here for the world? I obviously need to be here for myself right now. So that invites and evokes a conscious relationship to the information that we're consuming and processing. Wait, I can't process too much of that. I know my capacity. I know there's a lot of things that's going on in my life right now, and that's maybe too much for me. It is okay to focus on yourself. It is okay to create and prioritize your well-being right now. You are not belittling the world's pain when you take time to tend to yourself, you're actually doing a disservice to the pain, the atrocities, and the injustice that you're attempting to empathize with by shutting out your own personal experience and feelings so that you can be present for the world. And so a lot of people even now are having joyful experiences in their life. Breakthroughs, great things are happening. And people feel guilty for accessing joy right now. That is a misunderstanding of privilege. Privilege is supposed to invoke three things. Responsibility, gratitude, and reverence. When I realized how fucking privileged I am... I not only realize the responsibility I have to create platforms 
for the voiceless, to speak on things that may not be spoken about, to bring awareness to issues that often go silenced. I realize that responsibility. And also, it evokes gratitude and reverence for the things that I often take for granted, like the fact that I can sleep in my bed without any fear of a bomb dropping on my home, that I can wake up in the morning, grab my favorite coffee, go to work, come back home, without any type of disturbances, without any type of crisis happening within my city. There are things that I get to enjoy, given my privileges. I get to enjoy the fact that I can travel to certain places, that I can rest when I need to. These are things that I am privileged to experience. And so I hold them with reverence and gratitude because I know not many people can say that. And so to feel shameful for the fact that I can travel to different cities and countries, that I can wake up in the morning and grab my favorite coffee, that I can sleep in bed in my comfort mattress, that is not supposed to evoke shame. So when I feel the shame, which most people are right now, we overcompensate. We overcompensate for the shame of our privilege by then belittling and shrinking and dimming our joy. By sitting in states of sadness and depression, not because that may be our authentic and genuine experience, but because we're trying to override the shame and the guilt that we're feeling, knowing the privileges that we're experiencing. So, again, coming back to the personal, how we actually create change, how we actually empathize with the pain of others and the suffering we're seeing in the world is by not dimming our light or dimming our joy. Joy is not just a personal experience. It is literally a collective field of positive energy that has the capacity and the power to uplift, to inspire, and to heal. When we are suppressing our joy, we are serving no one. So I want to encourage you to allow yourself to feel that joy, to let yourself be joyous. That joy that you feel is not a burden to anybody. It is a gift to the world. So again, coming back to the personal experience, maybe in your life, there was somebody that felt like your joy was a burden. You see, like it's all tied. Your relationship to the collective is often a reflection of your relationship to yourself that has been shaped by a relationship in your life with a parental figure, or somebody that you really loved. This relationship to the collective offers us a lot of insight into the things that we still need to process, things that we can even form a deeper relationship to. Like the grief, like I shared earlier, I'm learning even more now than ever 
how to process my own grief. The childhood that I never had. The childhood that I never got. But also the childhood that I could have had. Like I could have been that child that was mining Colton in Congo. That could have been my life. And so there's so much of me right now that's grieving, that's processing the children that are in those experiences. And I see so much of myself in them. And so right now I am grieving a lot of things, a lot of things. And none of this, none of it has led me to restrict and suppress any joy that comes into my life. Because I understand that joy and grief are sisters. My capacity to experience joy is dependent on my capacity to hold my own grief. When I can feel my grief, I expand my ability to feel, to express, to embody, and to regulate through my own joy. So I encourage you to sit with anything that really resonated with you in this episode and to also take the time to come back to your body to draw the line between where you end and where the world begins learn to draw that line learn to develop the practices that allow you to have that level of spiritual maturity and emotional maturity where you can feel your body as your own not as a dumping ground for the collective pain for the collective grief you know where your body is you know what is yours what you're processing what belongs to you and you're not carrying things on behalf of somebody else out of guilt or shame if there's anything you take away it's developing that discernment and a conscious relationship with social media, what you are consuming now. Take a break if you need to. Come back to your life. Be present with your relationships in your life. So there was so much in this episode that I wanted to address and talk about, but I didn't want this to be a two hour long episode. So I hope you found something here that resonated with you. And I thank you so much for listening if you made it all the way here. And if there's anything that resonated with you, anything you want to talk about, uh, feel free to send me a DM on Instagram. I would love to hear your thoughts and uh, takeaways from this episode today. And so if there's anything that you wanted me to explore, unpack or dive deeper into, feel free to share that with me uh, via Instagram DM as well. And so, yeah, thank you so much for listening, taking the time out to listen today. And I'm going to wish you a beautiful day and a beautiful evening wherever you are in the world. Peace.